Hi, my name is Ross Ritchie, and I'm the CEO and the founder of Boom Studios, and you're listening to Nerd Byword. Welcome into the Nerd Byword podcast, the show where everything is made up and the points don't matter. Or is that Franklin Richards' mutant identity? Oops, sorry. I've been watching, I've been watching uh, reruns of Whose Line Is It Anyway, and the lines are becoming blurred. Uh, nevertheless, we are here today with an exclusive interview with Mr. Ross Ritchie. Yeah, that Ross Ritchie, the CEO and founder of Boom Studios. Ross was kind enough to join us and give us not just a peek, but a full behind the scenes, behind the curtain tour of the publishing and corporate side of the comic book industry. So if you're a fan of comics and, and in particular, the inner workings uh, of the process, this is one that you don't want to miss. But first, let's go full force into our nerd news segment. Dave, you've got something that's both heartbreaking and rage-inducing. What's going on? Yeah, so we are returning once again to the uh, what we've been calling the strange case of Ray Fisher. But I think it's high time we start calling it the strange case of Joss Whedon. Last week, Charisma Carpenter became the latest actor to speak out against writer-director Joss Whedon, Joining the likes of Ray Fisher and Gal Gadot, Fisher in particular uh, has alleged toxic onset behavior by Whedon during reshoots for Justice League. This has been a story we have revisited uh, several times at this point. Carpenter, of course, worked with Joss Whedon across two series, uh, both Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, where she portrayed the snarky but lovable Cordelia Chase. So on Twitter, uh, Carpenter wrote, and I quote here, for nearly two decades, I have held my tongue and even made excuses for certain events that traumatize me to this day. Joss Whedon abused his power on numerous occasions while working together on the sets of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. While he, uh, while he found his misconduct amusing, it only served to intensify my performance anxiety, disempower me, and alienate me from my peers. The disturbing incidents triggered a chronic physical condition from which I still suffer, it is with a beating, heavy heart that I say I coped in isolation and at times destructively. End quote. Uh, Carpenter goes on to describe inappropriate treatment she received while pregnant, Whedon mocking her faith, and ultimately being let go from Angel between its fourth and fifth season, which she describes as retaliatory. My heart goes out to all the victims of Whedon's toxic behavior. I obviously cannot fathom what that experience was like for these actors who were simply trying to make a living, you know, with their craft. I can, however, uh, speak from the perspective of a fan. And we're talking Buffy, Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse, The Avengers, Uncanny X-Men comics, um, actually Astonishing X-Men comics, Cabin in the Woods. You know, these are all staples of my nerd life. They helped shape my nerdy tastes. I remember when I was a kid, Buffy the Vampire Slayer premiered in Germany with a two-hour event. It was a school night, and since the show was basically considered horror at the time, it aired quite late. My parents told me I could watch the first half and record the other half, and then I had to go to bed. 
with those instructions, they went to bed for the night. And I could not tear myself away from the screen. I was mesmerized. I, I instantly fell in love with the series. And I stayed up way past my bedtime just to finish it. I could not wait till the next day to watch the second part. What I'm trying to say here is that I've always loved Whedon's work. Always. Even things that felt like missteps, like Age of Ultron or Dollhouse. I enjoyed them. And now... I'm just not sure how to deal with something like this as a fan. How do you separate the art from the artist? How do you reconcile the creative product you love so much with the person behind those works? Somebody who, in this case, appears to revel in his power over others and uses that power not for kindness and support, but for harassment and toxicity. How? How how do you reconcile something like that, Chris? I don't know. Yeah, so unfortunately, this is something that I have extensive experience with. Um, When the allegations and and all the news came to light around Bill Cosby, that was um, earth shattering for me. Uh, Bill Cosby was an individual that was very, very formative of my upbringing, of my childhood. I watched the Cosby show religiously um, every night on on, uh, syndication and reruns on, on Nick at Night. And even as I became a father, I modeled myself after Cliff Huxtable and many of the mannerisms and the little jokes and the snide remarks. I modeled myself after him and his comedy. And, and so when every, everything came to light out of that, that was a real, real devastating time for me uh, individually. You couple that with um, the loss of Robin Williams, who, who, who tragically passed away on my birthday. Um, and uh, it, it, it was just a really rough time for me, um, you know, just just, you know, having to separate that and to think about all of the lives that were ruined and, and all of the impact negatively and horrifically that this individual made. Um, I had to healthily distance myself from this, from this individual and from this, I, I still can't bring myself to watch the show. I know some folks do and they can separate that for me. Um, it, at least in that respect, I'm an absolutist. Um, and I'm a big Joss Whedon fan as well. Astonishing X-Men was one of the most formative and, and enjoyable pieces of X-Men literature um, on my read through, it was the first assignment that I gave you for our homework. So um, it, it's just a really weird place to be here again. Um, and a lot is being made of cancel culture um, from people who who are not fans of it and 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 want to rally around the First Amendment and and other things. But I think there's a difference between cancel culture and being held accountable for your words and for your actions and the way that you treat people. And, and it's high time that we start holding people accountable for what they say and what they do towards other people in a harmful aspect. When you're sitting here saying, are you going to whether or not you keep it referring to this unborn child and like no matter your thoughts on pro-life, pro-choice, all of that. The fact that he ignored calls from her representatives and then continued to mistreat her and said it that she was sabotaging his project because she got pregnant is just disgusting. And and it just further 
pictures and, and further fills in the lines of this backstory that we've heard for rumblings for quite some time with Joss Whedon. And, and it creates this, this picture of an individual that is just disgusting. Yeah. Ultimately I have no good answers here. Um, and I think as a fan of Whedon's, I'm going to be struggling with what, what's going on here uh, quite, quite a while. Um, I had been considering, you know, launching my, you know, annual Buffy rewatch here pretty soon. And, and I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm just not sure how to proceed with any of this. Um, it's going to take me some time to, to, to process this as a huge fan of, of Whedon's work. It, it, I just, I think I'm going to need some time to figure this one out. Now, Chris, uh, kind of continuing in a similar vein, you have a bit of news for us, uh, this week as well. What have you got? Well, this one I don't have any trepidation about, and I don't want to, you know, seem bitter, but I'll, I'll just report the facts and then we'll go from there. Uh, so Gina Carano, actress and, and former MMA fighter, best known for her role as Cara Dune on Disney Plus's smash hit, The Mandalorian, has been relieved of her duties, according to a spokesperson at Lucasfilm. This news came after yet another inflammatory social media post from the far right leaning Carano, who compared holding Republican viewpoints in modern America with being a Jewish person during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Her Instagram post from yesterday, February 10th, we're recording here on the 11th, reads, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? End quote. The statement from Lucasfilm reads, quote, Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Nevertheless, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable, end quote. Now, it was further revealed that Lucasfilm had big plans in motion for Carano, as she was set to be revealed as the star of her own Mandalorian spinoff during Disney's uh, Investor Day in December. Some speculate that that was the kind of spin or the tail behind Rangers of the New Republic that we weren't really sure what to make of. But her November tweets... Um, where she openly mocked transgender individuals by adding boop, bop, beep to her Twitter name, uh, canceled that decision. The decision to do so, uh, add that to her Twitter name, was made all the more troubling as co-star and series lead Pedro Pascal came out in full support of his sister Lux, who recently came out as transgender. Uh, Carano also openly mocked COVID-19 prevention protocols, anti-mask stances, um, anti-lockdown, open everything back up kind of stances, and advocated uh, in favor of election fraud in support of Donald Trump. This was seemingly a decision that was a long time coming, but the recent Instagram post was indeed the final straw. Dave, your thoughts? Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest here. I liked Cara Dune. Sincerely, when The Mandalorian began, I was nowhere near social media yet. Um, so I was kind of in my own little Facebook bubble, essentially, just with some family and friends. But as far as like Twitter, Instagram, and those sorts of things, um, or even following public figures, that was just not on my radar at the time. Really, um, this podcast sort of got me out of my, my little bubble. 
So I had no idea initially that Gina Carano was a bit of a controversial figure. I just enjoyed that character and I enjoyed that performance. Um, here, much like the Joss Whedon situation, I, I don't quite know how to reconcile the art with the artist and, and where, where do you draw the line between that? And is there a, a space to still enjoy the art, even though the artist may have, you know, hold unpopular views or say abhorrent things or treat others, you know, poorly? Um I, I will say this. I've I've seen a lot of expression online about uh, Gina Carano's firing, and some of that has been uh, expressions of joy. Um, and I find the things she said absolutely objectionable. Totally agreed. But at the same time, I I just I can't find it in myself to take joy in somebody, no matter how much I dislike their views or their statements or their actions, losing their livelihood. Lucasfilm is completely within its rights to terminate Carano, and Carano, yes, is simply facing the consequences of her actions, which she should. Do I have to enjoy that situation, though? I I don't. I maintain hope that that perhaps there is a world where people like Joss Whedon and people like Gina Carano will learn the error of their ways and and at some point perhaps find a way to to redeem themselves. But I just don't have that level of of Schadenfreude in me to crow uh, joyously on on social media like this is some kind of win. To me, it's not. A win would be for Gina Carano to see the error of her ways, to learn uh, to treat others more compassionately, and for a character that I found enjoyable not to be lost ultimately from the Mandalorian. That's a win to me. Um, at this point, you know, her losing her job and and continuing to be, um, you know, on the wrong side of history, essentially, I don't consider that a win, Chris. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully disagree here. I I did not enjoy her performance um, as Cara Dune. I think um, it suffered from a recurring trope of mixed martial artists and or wrestlers, professional wrestlers trying to make it, make the shift into acting and it doesn't quite translate. Not everybody is going to be a, a Dwayne Johnson. Not everybody is going to be a Dave Batista. Uh, for this one, her performance just fell completely flat for me. So th- then when you add this, I, I felt like her line delivery was completely emotionless. Um, you know, like the one of the last things she said was like, oh, great one x-wing were saved like it didn't really invoke anything in me so I, I i was not a fan of her performance and then you add this onto it um so i i am, am ready for this transition to go forward i think that it it is a lost opportunity definitely for like a, a further you know expounding upon this universe that they're trying to build but um I I can see how they can go forward without it at the same time. And, and the thing that also really, I think uh, it, it should be underlined here is, and, and you touched on this as well, is if she were to come out and, you know, ex- express growth and understanding, um, if, if, if memory serves that Pedro Pascal spoke, you know, closely with her about, like how her viewpoints on transgender individuals could be received. And then she took that back down. So there was some, some conversation going back there, but for the most part, it seems like 
she wasn't seeing any accountability for her inflammatory statements. She wasn't seeing any kind of backlash other than fans being upset. And so it's almost like she was flaunting it, uh, you know, in the face of all of this. And um, also I'm not going to, you know, give credit to Lucasfilm or anything because she wasn't unemployed she wasn't currently employed by them anyway. This was just like, we don't have any plans with her at this time anyway. So we're just making it, you know, stand out there. So it it seems like they were already done with her and this wasn't really the big slam dunk. Like everyone is thinking it is. And I agree that, you know, she needs to, you know, have consequences for actions, which everybody ultimately has to, you know, freedom of speech is not freedom of consequence. That's clearly something that, uh, you know, is, is frequently discussed, uh, online i just i don't know man um like i said i don't see any of this particularly as a win i I hope and i'll continue to hope uh for personal growth on her part for personal growth on joss whedon's part for a change of heart for learning from mistakes that that to me ultimately is a win yeah for sure i can i can totally agree with that i mean it's the same reason that we you know, root for storylines where Dr. Doom can be seen as, you know, someone who fights on side of the heroes where Magneto is on, you know, the X-Men roster. So, you know, someone where we, we disagree with them and, you know, for a change of heart, why not? Why, why wouldn't that happen in real life? You know? Yeah, exactly. All right. That wraps up our nerd news segment. Be sure to stick around after this, our first break, as we sit down with Ross Ritchie, the CEO and founder of Boom Studios. So if you're a fan of Something is Killing the Children, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you're definitely going to want to be here for this one. Hey, nerds, welcome back. And we have a very special Byword Big Talk for you today. We are joined by the CEO and founder of Boom Studios. Ross Ritchie. Mr. Ritchie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we typically start off each interview with our guest nerd origin story. We took our entire first episode and told our own stories. So what was your first exposure to the nerd world? Well, when you say nerd world, do you mean the world of nerds or do you mean the world of comic books? Both. Okay. So uh, when I was four, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, cable TV was not widespread, and Star Trek was syndicated um, in Texas around uh, the evening. So after the evening news came on at 10 and went off at 10.30, uh, my dad, when I was four years old, would wake me up to watch Star Trek with him uh, at 10.30 at night. And so I have these fond memories of Star Trek, the original series, watching it in syndication, and trying to pretend that I wasn't falling asleep so that my parents didn't send me back to bed. <laughs> and of course, I was falling asleep every time because I was four and I shouldn't have been up at 1030 at night. <laughs> um, now, my first exposure to the world of comics was I got an Easter basket when I was six and it had a Fantastic Four comic book in it. And when I was six, I wanted to be made of fire and I wanted to be made of rocks. And so the thing and the human torch were instantly spectacular and amazing. And I remember looking at the corner box and seeing the number of the issue and thinking if there were that many Fantastic Four comic books in the world, I need to go track them all down and read every single one of them. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic Four is, I think, a a great entryway into the world of comic books. So as a sort of a member of the actual industry, how did you get your start 
uh, in the comic book industry? I accidentally fell into it. I had been a huge comic book fan and an ardent collector at the age of 12. I mowed lawns to save enough money to buy my giant size X-Men number one. And so I was a pretty serious collector. And by the time I went to college and graduated, moved out to Los Angeles, I went to a convention and ended up in a conversation with someone at the Malibu Comics booth. And they offered me a job. And it just so happened that I needed a job. So that was a great opportunity. I hadn't envisioned myself working in the comic book business. I always thought it was a hobby and something that I really enjoyed, but I didn't see myself professionally doing it until I needed a gig and it was get, it was offered to me. And so I was lucky. Now, speaking of Malibu Comics, you worked uh, with some industry giants, like names like Walt Simonson, Jim Starlin, Howard Chaik, and Barry Windsor Smith. Are there any particular nuggets that you gleaned from, from working alongside them? Well, one of the things that I thought uh, characterizes in particular the four that you've mentioned, but is true of that generation of creators, is that they have always been receptive to younger generations and always interested in cultivating um, other creators and other executives and anyone in the comic book business that they felt had potential. Um, I was greeted very warmly and supported very well by all of those guys. And I'll always be grateful for it because I was a young punk in my early twenties with hair down to my shoulders and I had a lot of attitude and they were uh, just terrific. And uh, I think it was a real example of uh, creators that were confident and they really believed in the stories that they were telling and they were very collaborative. And so having that sort of uh, open heartedness that wants to embrace uh, people and believes in people and supports them. Uh, and I think it was pretty indicative of uh, Malibu at that time, as well as, you know, a wide range of creators. Stephen Grant was someone that was in that group. Uh, he did a book at Bervura with Gil Kane, the legendary Gil Kane, who co-created the Hal Jordan Green Lantern. And Stephen Grant is the guy that I did a comic book with um, nearly 20 years later that we turned into a movie called Two Guns. So um, just a magical time, magical group of people, really wonderful, every single one of them and supportive and kind. And, you know, they, they, I, I just owe all those guys so much. Do you, do you find that the industry, just as a follow-up to that, has changed since those Malibu days? Or do you still find that creators generally are, are warm and welcoming to, to new blood in the industry? I think that the business changes every two years. And so, you know, when you talk about going back to that era, that was a long time ago. And I think it's uh, probably been 25 years. So it's probably changed 12 times. And, and I think at different time periods, yeah, people get more competitive and they get more t territorial uh, with what's going on. And I don't blame them. You know, it, a lot of times, you know, the business struggles to pay attention to all of the creators that are vital. And uh, I think one of the things that makes you a good professional is if you're paying attention and you're trying to keep up with um, what's exciting creatively and trying to put your best foot forward. So, you know, I think it's a, 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 a I think the business has changed and it's changed a lot. And um, the landscape, I think the business is getting better and better and better every year. And I think opportunities for creators are better and better and better. 
So let's jump forward to 2005. What was the process behind founding uh, Boom Studios and what was your purpose in doing so? What was your vision at that time? Well, I'd probably draw your attention to the fact that something that's recursive in my professional story is that I continue to fail to see my own potential and I'm blessed with people around me who see my potential. And that happened when I struck up a conversation at the Malibu Comics booth. I wasn't looking for a job and I was offered one. In the same way, I had uh, been offered a, uh, Keith Giffen had become a friend of mine as a huge creator, co-created Lobo and really famous runs on the Funny Justice League, as well as the Legion of Superheroes. And um, Keith offered, uh, he was going to do draw a book at Image and he wanted me to write it. And through that process, um, I got into publishing. The guy that inked the second issue of our of our series from Image, which was called Dominion, the guy who inked the second issue, he had a company called Atomica, and it's spelled A-T-O-M-E-K. And they had been publishing in the late 80s and had stopped publishing, and he wanted to bring it back. And uh, he called me up, and I helped him do that, and that got me into publishing. And then Keith came to me and said, you should launch your own comic book company. And, you know, somebody like Keith, who's a legend in the business and a Hall of Famer and so talented, he's worked nonstop in the business for 45 years. Somebody like that believing in me and seeing my potential was what motivated me to start Boom. You know, one of my heroes basically said, stop sitting in the bleachers and get on the playing field. And in just, you know, 16 years, Boom has gone, you know, toe to toe, basically, with companies like DC and Marvel, which have been around for, gosh, 80 plus years. What are the ingredients to your uh, quote unquote secret sauce? How have you been able to achieve something like this so quickly in in the grand scheme of, of comic books? Well, I one of the things that I did when I started was that I looked at the reality when you're starting that nobody knows who you are and they have no expectations for you. And you shouldn't expect everybody to think that you're um, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so I began the company with very modest page rates with sales goals that I thought were very uh, realistic. And somebody else would have looked at and said are uh, very, very small sales goals. Because I knew that you have to walk before you run and you need to build a relationship with retailers and you need to build a relationship with the fans and grow over time. And I think when people launch comic book companies, they think that they're going to come out of the gate at a really high level and they think that they're going to take over the world. And the truth of the matter is, is it's really, really difficult to do. And you start in a very, very humble place and your orders on your first issues are not good. And if you're lucky, they might incrementally get a little better, but they usually don't. They usually get worse. And you need the will to hang in there. You got to have a vision for what you want to do. And you've got to really commit yourself to the goal. And then when when you have a series that clicks, you need to know how to build on that. And uh, it without, you know, doing more of the exact same thing and diluting your brand. And so... That's really been the path for Boom, which is to grow and grow and grow and uh, bring the creators along with us as we've become a bigger and more profitable uh, company. 
and gone from something that I started in the spare bedroom of my apartment to, you know, 47 people that get up and go to work every day. And so I've always just had a very grounded, um, uh, tough, sort of realistic. I think it's realistic. Other people might say it's harsh, but I just think you've got to, you got to have your feet on the ground. You got to know it's difficult and you've got to be dedicated to the long haul and you've got to make tough choices and you got to care. And then, you know, once people get that you're authentic and you're not uh, promising them the sun, the moon and the stars, and then failing to deliver, but that you're just getting better and better and better, then people relationship with you grows and you, and, and they trust you more and more and they understand what you're doing and where you're going. And through that trust, you build up long-term relationships and that leads to long-term success. So we have a fantastic uh, group of listeners and, and we decided with, with uh, such a special interview to open it up to them to submit questions. So the next couple of questions are coming directly from our listeners. Um, and you can find all these cats on Instagram uh, at Dark Paradise Comics. It's a fantastic indie creator uh, is asking what factors go into choosing new titles to publish and how can an indie creator go about pitching their work in this kind of like new normal without conventions being widely open? Well, that's a, you know, we're, we're sort of in a very interesting place at Boom because in 2019, we cut our publishing line by 15%. What we saw in the comic book shops was that the market was overproducing content and that a lot of the racks were crowded. And so we chose to put out less content and we saw an immediate sales impact as sales went up. And then in 2020, we cut our line by another 10%. And so that's a lot. I mean, over two years, cutting your line by 25% is a lot of cutback. And so in regards to us specifically, the thing that I try to put energy into on Instagram, uh, I'll make you know videos um, through Instagram stories uh, to try to tell some of the younger creators that uh, at Boom, it's very hard for a new creator to break in because they're competing for slots in the publishing schedule that are occupied by Kieran Gillen and James Tynan and, you know, for heaven's sakes now by Keanu Reeves and, you know, Matt Kent and um, uh, uh, so many people, you know, Tom Taylor and Al Ewing and Brian Azzarello. And so... Or, you know, Magic the Gathering, which is a license we just announced, or, you know, Power Rangers. And so we can't publish uh, everything. And so we have to make choices and it's difficult. I don't want young creators to find themselves in a situation where they're competing against somebody that's been in the business for 20 years. It's not uh, fair. And so I think that I, I don't have as much experience you know, being at Aftershock, I've never worked there. I've never worked at SourcePoint Press or Oni or all the different publishers that exist in the space. And so I don't really know how they approach um, these uh, different opportunities. I will give you the answer that I'm very entrepreneurial. And so I, you'll see all the way through it that I sort of tend to react to challenges by just looking at what can I do and what can I control and how can I make my future happen? And so if I was a creator now, I mean, I love crowdfunding. I think it's absolutely mind blowing. 
I think it is staggering uh, change in the dynamic of how comics can be made uh, because it's a digital distribution system that gives you access to a theoretically infinite customer base. And it's such a massive game changer. And if I was you know, a creator looking to break in, if I was a writer, I would go find an artist. If I was an artist, I'd go find a writer. And I would create a 20-page comic because 20 pages is something that you can do on the side and it doesn't consume uh, your you know, 40-hour work week. And I would go make a, a self-contained 20-page story and I would kickstart it and I would try to uh, not take any money from it uh, to pay. It would, I, I would just try to cover printing and then I would have a calling card and I would take those, I'd overprint so that I had a couple of extras after I was done fulfilling orders. And I would uh, turn around. Then I have an email database of people that like my work and I could go do it again and I could grow that email database and I could learn how to market to that fan base and do more comics. And then, um, and maybe your artist is tired and wants to go somewhere else and you get a new artist. But then I would have that comic, that one shot, and I would take that and I would take, I would mail that out to um, all the different uh, publishers that exist in the space. And it, it would, I would say, you know, I'm not submitting a new original pitch to you because uh, the people that you have to be careful about submitting unsolicited pitches. Uh, because if you, if you submit an idea that um, the publisher is going to do with a different creator, that contract is signed and that was already in process before they got your submission, um, they can open themselves up to litigation. So you don't want to be in the business of running around pitching new original ideas when no one knows who you are. What you want to do is you want to say, here's my self-contained comic book that I wrote. I got the artist or vice versa. And it's an, a representative example of my work and give it a read. And if you like it, here's my email. And, you know, the email should be on the inside front cover. So it's real visible and easy to find. And that's your ticket. And you can then, you know, submit to all the publishers. And if nobody bites with the first one, maybe they'll bite with the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. You know, what's the story about Todd McFarlane sending out 300, um, you know, artist illustration submissions? Um, you know, the guy just never quit and he just worked hard and he got better and better and better. And he's arguably, you know, the number one artist of the past 20 years. So um, it's, you know, that I hope there's advice somewhere in there that is worth listening to and taking. That's that's kind of the answer that I see from my vantage point. And, and Todd, Todd, to his credit, has not stopped working even now after he's, you know, re- absolutely he's gained like this, you know, Titan moniker in the industry he he never stops he's now he's creating all these action figures it's so cool to walk into walmart or target and see you know his handiwork in, in these action figures for dc it's such a cool thing well and the the thing that i would elaborate on with todd is like i was working at malibu when todd launched um the the action figure company and i was blessed because i was asked by malibu to participate in the Ultraverse uh, action figure licensing that was going on with Galoob. And I met with toy executives and I said, we should do action figures that are more detailed. And they looked at me like I had insulted them. (laughs) Like 
it was so far beyond anything that anybody could have possibly contemplated. I might as well said, why don't we take off all our clothes and go running into the parking lot? <laughs> they would have received that better. Okay. And then the idea of all the things that Todd does as far as the variants and the different paint jobs and the ways that you repurpose molds, you know, all those ideas, you know, Galoob looked at me like, you know, antenna was coming out of my head. And the thing is Todd went out and did it. Like he, he had that vision and he built it from the ground up when no one in the toy business thought any of that was even possible. So, you know, image is a massive accomplishment, but people thought comic books were possible. You know, the kind of toys that Todd did, they just didn't even have a category. Yeah, it's incredible. So another one of our uh, listeners uh, at Winter Winds uh, wanted to know more about this whole deal with, uh, with Keanu Reeves and how that came about. Did you approach him? Did he approach you? Uh, what, what was sort of the, 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 the driving force behind Keanu Reeves coming to Boom? Yeah, well, first I want to say hi to Winter Winds, who I know from Instagram. So thanks for sending in a question. I really appreciate it. Um, the uh, we, we have a division of the company, uh, which is the entertainment division. It's the film and TV division. And there's a team that's led by Stephen Christie, who uh, was the former editor-in-chief of Arkea, that he runs our TV deal with Netflix and as of this moment today, right now, we are in a film deal with 20th Century uh, on what used to be the Fox lot. And because of those relationships, we know all the talent agencies. Uh, we have a, a, a show in uh, production right now at Netflix. I cannot tell you what it is. And we also, it's unannounced. And we also have a, a show coming on Disney Plus called Just Beyond that's based on the R.L. Stein series of graphic novels that we publish uh, through our Kabuma print. And um, through these relationships in Hollywood, uh, we got an incoming call from one of the agencies and they said, Keanu Reeves has an idea for a comic book and he wants to pitch it to you. And I would love to look cool or say that I'm some sage or prophet. But the truth of the matter is, is I sat on the couch and listened to Keanu for about two hours and said, yes. <laughs> so I wish I was cooler than I am, but that's how it happened. <laughs> uh, yeah. Winter wins his edits and, and the stuff that he posts on Instagram is just mind blowing. It's super cool what he can do. Love it. Um, our pal uh, comics asks, uh, post-pandemic and the distribution shakeup by AT&T and DC, how positive do you feel about the future of the direct market? Infinitely positive. One of the things that we saw in 2020 is that uh, comic shops, so for six weeks, Diamond shut down and couldn't distribute. And the reason that Diamond did that beyond sort of government mandates is they wanted to protect their factory, uh, their warehouse workers which I completely applaud and support. We needed to make sure that people, it, it's not worth anybody getting killed to get us all our comics. And uh, during this time, what comic shop owners did was they refused to quit. And they're true heroes. They went and dug into their back issues and they put them online 
And the guys that didn't have an online business invented one, either through eBay or a new website. And they invented book clubs and they did curbside pickup and they called, uh, you know, they hit their email lists. And from pretty much every single retailer I've connected with, uh, which is saying something because I stay in touch with the retailers, they all had a better 2020 than they had a 2019. So think about that. In the middle of COVID, these retail heroes did better than they did the year before. The direct market is incredibly strong and it's resilient and powerful because it's anchored by 2,000 entrepreneurs that love what they do. And when the chips get down, they dig their heels in and they figure out how to keep going and how to make their businesses sustainable. They were absolutely staggering what talented and resourceful and amazing people are in the direct market. And so, you know, I think with the six-week shutdown as the real test, um, you know, I have a lot of friends at DC and there's a lot of brilliant people at DC. And I think that they... um, have a lot of challenges that were lowered on them as a result of uh, COVID. So um, I'd give you an example with Disney because we had Disney bought Fox and we had a film deal with Fox, 20th Century Fox. And Disney was losing $30 million a day. So What do you do with your company when you're losing $30 million a day? Does anybody doubt that Disney is a powerful, strong company that can survive? Well, of course not. Everyone knows that. But if you're standing there and you're like, we're not going to go out of business, but good Lord, what am I going to do when I'm losing $30 million a day? And what they had to do was furlough staff and lay people off and or all sorts of difficult decisions that were horrible black eyes that were just so, you know, hard. And I know that for DC, a lot of the, you know, you see the cutbacks that hit uh, some of their staff as a result, uh, directly attributable to the fact that the movie business shut down. There are no movies in theaters. You can go to theaters and go see movies. Well, what do you do? You're an entertainment company. Like, You're supposed to be making TV shows, but you can't uh, open a single soundstage, you know, because the state of California refuses to let you. And so, you know, I think as fans, we see these different things and we don't know what's really going on. And we have to keep in mind that um, a lot of the corporate stuff, it looks like it's manipulative to us and it looks like it's a supervillain. We, we love our superhero comics. So we instantly say, you know, the corporation is evil. And the truth of the matter is, is, you know, these, co- these entertainment companies, they were lit on fire by COVID and they're desperately with fire hoses trying to just hang in there. And so, you know, the market will change. The market changes all the time. And the thing that does not change in the direct market is that you have these incredible, valiant, mom and pop entrepreneurs that get up every single day and they adjust and they envision a bright future and they figure out how to get there. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely been a, a fascinating situation to watch. 
uh, how how comic books as a as a business kind of came through this pandemic. Yeah, I think I think we've won. I think there's lots of great news. So um, we have uh, another uh, listener question from at Nerd Nostalgia Podcast. Uh, and this is actually a really interesting question. Did any toy, game, movie, or some other piece of nostalgia make it through the wonder years and into your adulthood? Is there something that you managed to hang on to? And if not, uh, what item do you wish had survived uh, to today? Well, you're probably going to be disappointed with my response on this one because I held on to everything with both hands. <laughs> so, you know, I just can't tell you in my 20s when I was uh, renting apartments and, you know, moving from roommate to roommate, how many boxes and boxes of my childhood toys I held on to and every single trading card and every single comic book. Um, I am not the guy that mom's through her, through his, uh, uh, you know, comics out. And, you know, when I was 10, I was reading articles about how action comics was worth, uh, you know, a mint. And so I just never, you know, I was always been a reader and a collector. And so I've held on to everything, uh, in my, uh, now that I'm older and I have kids, um, I've started to let let go of some of that stuff because it's more sort of with the passing of the generations, it's more important for me that they have their things. And, you know, let's be realistic. Like, I don't I need some place to put the car in the garage. I don't need to be <laughs> completely filled with everything. So um, but, uh, you know, that's the stuff that, um, you know, my my wonder years, if you're looking for what my wonder years were. You know, I in the late seventies, I saw Star Wars in the theater, and then uh, the Micronauts was a really big action figure line for me. And there, I just did a um, a really fun uh, YouTube video with Reggie for Reggie Collects about Rom R O M, uh, which was a famous Marvel comic based on a toy that no one remembers. But I bought the toy and read the comic and I bought the Micronauts action figures and I read those comics and all of that was my first love, which was science fiction. It goes back to Star Trek. And so I loved science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars, Micronauts, ROM, Godzilla, uh, the Shogun Warriors. Um, I sort of reluctantly eventually started buying superhero comics because I ran out of science fiction comics to read. Okay. So you said the magic word Godzilla. We're both team Godzilla. Are you Godzilla or Kong? Oh, as a ex, as a somebody who published Kong, what are you doing to me, bro? <laughs> why, why you gotta? I thought we were friends. As, as the as the proud owner of a CGC nine point eight Godzilla number one from nineteen seventy seven, who's published Kong, you know, I you're like, why, you know, do you like ice cream or do you like pie? And I'm like, I like ice cream and pie. Which child do you love the most? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if we're gonna go back and do it, like, didn't in the original version of Kongzilla, like the one that was released in the U.S. Kong one, and the one that were released in Japan, Godzilla one, like that sounds good to me. It's like, uh, you know, I've actually been stopped by fans in the comic shop before who said, "Who's who's gonna win, Superman versus the Hulk?" And my response was. Uh, well, if they're fighting in Superman's comic, Superman is going to win. If they're fighting in the Incredible Hulk, the Incredible Hulk is going to win. <laughs> Context is important. Context is everything. I actually, I actually maintain some hope. We were talking about this in an earlier episode that perhaps we'll do the traditional uh, superhero scenario and have them duke it out, and then 
there's some third monster that pops up that they have to team up to defeat. Yes. Uh, they meet, they fight, they team up. Yeah. It is, you know, the other way to think about it is that's how you created best friendships in kindergarten, right? <laughs> it was like, you're on the playground, you meet, you meet the guy, you get in a fight, and then both of you team up on the real bully and you become best friends. It sounds like every fourth issue of Amazing Spider-Man from the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God left Stan. Yeah. Uh, our pal at Nerdpool Reborn asks, if you could acquire one character from either DC or Marvel, who would you love to create a story for crossover-wise? Huh, 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 huh. Well, today, I would say uh, what I want to do is I want to crossover Berserker with Wolverine. Ooh, that'd be awesome. So Keanu Reeves versus Wolverine is what I'd love to see. And I know Keanu would love to see that too. So we'll see if Marvel wants to see it. That's a really interesting scenario. Speaking of crossovers, I have to say that the the Power Rangers Ninja Turtle crossover was one of the fondest memories of reading comics that I've had in a long time. Oh, thank you very much. We were really excited about that. And like the office practically erupted when we got that deal done. And uh, people were just, it was such a great round robin of tremendously talented people in the, sh- in the office uh, brainstorming on all the things that we could do. So that's, you know, it was a tremendous accomplishment by the creative team. And I'm really proud of the staff. Thank you. So we have another uh, listener question from at italkcomics, uh, who asks, how did the entire... Uh, what was the entire basis of Power Rangers comics coming uh, to Boom Studios? How did you uh, manage to work out that deal? Well, um, it was pretty simple. We have a, a, a senior editor, Bryce Carlson, who's the VP of editorial now. And Bryce used to be my assistant. And he graduated from being my assistant to being one of our earliest editors working for our editor-in-chief, Matt Gagnon. And so I've been working with Bryce forever. And uh, he came to me and he said, I really want to do Power Rangers. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, how much do you think it's going to cost? And he said a number that I won't repeat. And I said, okay, go go do it. And he tracked down Saban and, did, and we got the deal. So that's that's dramatic. the dramatics of comic book publishing right there. <laughs> it's very exciting. All right, staying on that trend of of Ameritoku, uh, our pal at the Nerd Village asks: Any chance we can get more uh, Ameritoku series into comics? He wants he wants Beetleborgs, he wants VR Troopers, some deeper mythos. Any chance that could happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, I think exploring the deeper catalog of Saban is something that's always interesting. And I think that that is the domain of Hasbro. And there's a lot going on at Hasbro. You know, I don't know if you tracked, they went out and bought their own movie studio. And they're very busy trying to launch the Power Rangers as a film and TV franchise. And on top of it, they're doing, you know, charting new water with um, G.I. Joe and Transformers. And so they got a lot going on. You know, and they're and they're busy trying to be the world's biggest toy company. So, um, it is. A, so, let me put it to you this way: it is something that I've talked about. So I'll just leave you with that. Uh, another uh, listener question at J One Future 
so he expressed concern about the lack of sort of a diverse landscape on the creative uh, front and in executive departments of comic books. Uh, what processes, he asks, do you have in place at Boom to ensure that due diligence is done in the hiring process? Hmm. Well, um, something a lot of people don't know is that Boom is um, 60% female majority female in its employee composition. And I think that's very uh, distinct and different from most comic book companies in the industry at large. And uh, we have a really diverse uh, publishing slate. So uh, we just announced uh, a project that we're really excited about, The Many Lives of, De of Layla Starr, that's coming from Ram V., uh, who is a very exciting uh, up-and-coming creator. We've got another series that we haven't announced yet uh, from an African-American woman who has worked on The Walking Dead um, that's going to be very uh, high-profile and a big launch for us this year. And we have, um, on top of that, a very accomplished African-American novelist who's launching uh, a new original for us in the next quarter. And, uh, you know, Boom has been a company that has very consistently won GLAD awards. Uh, we've won Glyph awards. And, uh, you know, something to keep in mind is that uh, Something is Killing the Children, which is a huge hit, uh, is authored by a bisexual man and features a gay lead character in it. And um, I've never done any of that on purpose. Um, I have only ever been interested in great stories and I've been interested in great creators and I don't uh, see the world through a filter that pays attention to race and gender and sexuality and things like that. Uh, I'm just focused on doing great comics and um People of color do great comics and gay people do great comics and great comics come from everywhere. And you just have to be open to it and you just have to be willing to go do uh, great comics with whoever has them. And that's something I'm really proud of at Boom. And I think approaching the world with an open heart and an earnest desire to do excellent work uh, has generated a lot of really exciting material from a wide range of uh, genders and ethnicities and sexual orientations. So, so Boom strikes an interesting balance between original series and licenses such as Buffy, Firefly, Adventure Time, Dark Crystal, Power Rangers, just to name a few of them. How do you go about selecting license holders you'd like to work with? And is there a license in particular you wish you could acquire? Well, if I told you what license I wanted to acquire, then somebody could listen to this and go get it before I do. So I'm definitely not going to tell you that. Sorry. Um, but um, when you talk about uh, our approach to licensing, how do we go about selecting the license holders that you'd like to work with? Well, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, Bryce coming to me and saying, I want to do Power Rangers. I'm like, great, let's go do it. Um, Adventure Time was pitched internally. It was a show that was on the air and there was an editor who's left the company. But at the time he came to me and said, we have a hole in publishing at Kaboom and I like Adventure Time. And I said, let's go do it. Um, I think that, 
you know, we, we've had a long, probably 10, 15 year relationship with the Henson company. And when we bought Arkea, uh, we inherited their Dark Crystal and Labyrinth publishing and expanded upon it. And so a lot of it is just how opportunities come on the radar. Sometimes you're sitting around and you're having lunch uh, with your staff and you're like, you know what would be really cool? It'd be really cool to do X, Y, and Z. And then you, you go chase it. And I really think you can't force things. I think it needs to be organic and natural. And I think that's uh, important. And otherwise, you know, it feels inauthentic. And it feels like you're trying to jam your particular thing down somebody's throat. So um, it's just an organic process. You just let let the things happen naturally. So we end our final segment of every episode we call nerd commendations. It's our nerdy recommendations of, of comics, of shows, of films that may be flying under the radar that we think that people should check out. Is there anything that you would recommend people check out? Well, let's see. That is interesting. I uh, have been enjoying a British TV show called Utopia. And I think it might've flown under some people's radar. Uh, It's a lot of fun. It's a conspiracy minded thriller that has at the centerpiece of it, a comic book. So let me know if that sounds familiar. I I watched the Amazon prime one with John Cusack and it was fantastic. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. They did Um, a US US version. version? Oh, that's cool. I should go watch that. That's great. I, I really enjoyed the British version. I didn't know there was a US version. So that's cool. And, um, so that's, that's, that's been a lot of fun. I would recommend, um, I, I produced a movie in 2012 called two guns. It stars Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. And it's based on a comic book by Stephen Grant, Matteo Santaluco. And I would suggest, uh, that y'all track that down and find it. You probably didn't know it was based on a comic book. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. Had the late Bill Paxton in it, who is a great guy. Uh, to get to know and James Marston who played Cyclops in the X-Men and Edward James Almas, lots of, lots of fun people in that movie. I, I remember watching that in theaters. I had no idea it was based on a comic. Oh, thanks for checking it out. I appreciate it. I hope you like it. Liked it. Loved it. Loved it. Thank you. Now, now if you don't mind, I actually have a, a follow-up question. Um, sure. You, you mentioned uh, the Boom Studios purchase uh, as uh, Ar- of Archaea as an imprint, yes. uh, which I think happened back in, t- in 2013. Yes. Um, what kind of went in- into that particular decision to, to basically uh, acquire uh, another comic book publisher? And, and how did you go about sort of integrating it into your larger vision for Boom Studios? Well, the Archaea had some backers that were that were financially supporting the company. And they had gotten to a place where they had financially supported the company as much as they could. And the company needed greater financial backing and support. And so they started looking around uh, for opportunities to have someone else uh, take it on. And through that process had contacted Boom And we had created a framework at Boom that published into different imprints. And so we were already publishing Kaboom, which was focused on uh, uh, younger readers. And then we had already focused on uh, Boombox, which was uh, female-driven, female-led content for mostly female audience. And so it was just natural to envision how 
Archaea could fit into the landscape that we already had because it didn't really duplicate the things that we already had and it amplified many of the things that we didn't. And um, the integration process was very easy because uh, we were growing at the time. And so, you know, Stephen Christie, who is the editor in chief, was a natural to take over our film and TV and has done a great job with it. And there were other folks like Mel Kahlo who were in the marketing department and we needed more marketing muscle. And so we just sort of added them to the team that we already had and we were off to the races. Yeah, you mentioned something else that's actually super interesting and something that uh, Chris and I continuously talk about. Um, we've talked a lot about you know the health of the industry and particularly how it seems like audience of um, comic books readers seems to be increasingly skewing older compared to you know previous generations. Um, do you find that uh, something like uh, Kaboom is a is a good way of drawing in younger readers to kind of you know get get younger readers I- into comic books and and keep the industry healthy? Well, I, I, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to disagree with your premise and I hope I do not offend you because I do not agree. Oh, not at all. But, um, go to your comic shop and ask them how many copies of Dogman they've sold because all the great retailers that I've seen in the space sell more Dogman than they can order. And who's, who's reading all those Dogman comics? It's kids. And, you know, Raina Telgemeier has sold millions and millions and millions of copies. The publishing, the hottest area of comic book publishing is kids material. And obviously, kids are enjoying the Marvel and DC content that's coming out in film and TV. And that's onboarding more and more people into comic shops. And comic shops are up and thriving. And, you know, I just, it, it, it's so funny because it's like, I get commenters on Instagram that come in and they're like, well, you know, the, the, everything's failing and it's all just, it's all going to go. And I'm just like, it's not, <laughs> you know, I don't know why we just want to believe all this doom about um, the comic book industry. It's more creative. It's more vital. There's more genres being published. It's growing in the book market. There was an article today that came out that in January, for January sales alone, graphic novels in the book trade were up 100% January over January. You know, we're just getting more and more people are discovering comics. They're discovering them earlier and they incorporate it into what they read. And those kids are growing up. And they're reading other graphic novels and some of them are migrating into comic shops and, um, you know, getting into superhero comics. I think that somehow there's something about us as fans that we see if Marvel is having a little trouble or we see DC, we sort of mistake the superheroes of one particular company as being the industry. And I don't think it is. I think the industry is bigger than uh, Marvel or DC. And Marvel and DC go through cycles and sometimes they're doing well and sometimes they're not. And that's just the nature of creativity. Sometimes um, creatively, you know, everybody has a favorite band or a favorite actor. Tom Cruise has made bad movies and, uh, you know, Coldplay has some albums that are better than others. 
Everything goes through creative cycles. And so, um, you know, the business is thriving. The business is growing. Kids are finding Dogman. They're reading that. They're graduating up and buying more graphic novels and getting into comics. And it's what we've always dreamed of. It's exciting. That that positivity is is absolutely infectious. Um, as, as a huge fan, obviously, of comic books, you have given me a, a a lot of hope for the future. I think there is a lot of hope in the future. It's it's exciting. I mean, look, man, I've dedicated my life to it. You know, so I'm all in. I believe, and you know, Boom's just grown every year, year over year over year, and continues to be embraced by the book market as well as the direct market. And I just think there's great stuff to go and be done. And, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think good things ever came out of uh, being convinced that the future is full of doom, especially when it's not. So as you move Boom into the future, what goals do you still wish to achieve as a publisher of comics? Well, 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 that's a good question to ask me after we launch Berserker, um, because we did something with Berserker that I never thought was possible. Um, Berserker number one has sold over 615,000 copies. And what that means is that the biggest book of the past five years was Star Wars number one from Marvel. And it sold a million copies, but it sold about half of those if I know my numbers correct and I might not. So I stand to be corrected feel free a commenter to correct me, but I think that half of those were sold through Loot Crate. And so if you're talking about just selling through stores, through comic shops, I think the last time that something sold that well was Spawn number one, or maybe Spawn sold a million copies a month for the first year. So, you know, at least since Spawn 12, and maybe Spawn 13 sold 700,000 or 800,000. But anyway, it's been a long time. It's 1994, probably, 1995. So um, that that news broke last week and kind of uh, blew, my, blew my mind, kind of sort of fused my circuits. So uh, I never thought that that book would be that big. I mean, Keanu's spectacular and amazing, but it's really hard to have the best-selling book in the comic book industry for the past, you know, 25 years. So, um, you know, what I want to do with Boom is I want to continue to do series that people embrace like Once in Future, Something is Killing the Children, We Only Find Them When They're Dead, Seven Secrets, uh, Wind, uh, all these things that have been huge sales successes for us. I love Lumberjanes. It's uh, I have two daughters of my own and it's made their lives better. Uh, and, you know, it's a hell of a thing when your kid logs on logs on to Zoom for her third grade class and they go around to do book reports. And her best friend did a book report on Lumberjanes because her best friend had no idea that uh, I published Lumberjanes. She just the best friend just loves lumberjanes and is doing a book report on it. So um, more of that, I want to do more stuff. And, you know, I'd really love to see companies like Netflix uh, translate uh, series into hit shows so that my creators can experience some of the excitement and the uh, modern day 
uh, sort of glory that comes from seeing your favorite series get translated into a hit TV show. So I think that's what we're focused on is how do we take everything to the next level? How do we do a better job for the fans? How do we do a better job for the creators? And how do we do more exciting stuff, which would be the kind of stuff that we want to see as fans? Well, Ross, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today. Thank you for your, your answers and and most importantly for instilling us with so much hope uh, and and excitement to read a bunch of comics. So thank you so much for this interview today. I had a blast and I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. That wraps up our Byword Big Talk for this week. Another huge thanks to Mr. Ross Ritchie for joining us and, and being so kind with his time and, and, and generous with his advice. So if you're an indie creator, uh, writer or artist, and, and you're looking to kind of get your name out there and your foot in the game, just keep pushing. And, and it's just really cool to see someone who, you know, is, is a big name in the industry to still care about the little guy. So, so definitely shouts to him and, and mad love to all our indie folks. Um, stick around after we come back from our final break, we'll hit you with two more patented nerd commendations. All right, we're back here for our final segment. It's the one we have patented, the one that we created. It's our beautiful brainchild, nerd commendations. Things that we love, that we're enjoying. It could be a comic, could be a show, could be a film video game, something that we're enjoying that we want to share out with you and think that you should check out as well. Dave, what do you have for us this week? I have been consuming comic books like crazy lately, just trying to get caught up on all this amazing stuff that I've been missing out on. And I'm just going to say it, man. I like Carol Danvers. I like Captain Marvel. She's one of my favorite characters and when handled well, unlike Civil War II, for example. Oh, God. Oh, man. Oh. God. <laughs> that almost that almost made my worst comics list on that episode. Yeah, her her portrayal in that particular book was not uh, very considerate of her history or who she is as a as a character. Character assassination at large. Exactly. Yeah, but she's probably one of the most interesting characters in the Marvel roster when done well. So imagine my delight when I recently began to read Kelly Thompson's run on Carol. The comic started with a brand new number one in January of 2019. It's been running for, I think, 25 issues now. And it's just a fantastic book. Thompson gets Carol in a way very few writers seem to. Carol here is strong. She's tough, an actual leader. But she's also real. She's a fleshed out character with hopes and fears. And Thompson does just a fantastic job with her. She takes the time to build on Carol's history. At one point, she has to face off against a mind-controlled rogue who you know, famously drained her powers and left her in a coma years earlier. So the matchup between those two, them having to fight each other, their inevitable team up, it was just a joy to read. Thompson also manages uh, to make the most of tie-in issues uh, to events, which usually are the weakest link of any comic book run. This is a serious challenge for many writers. How do you make these tie-in issues still fun and relevant um, and, and don't feel like sort of wasted space? Her tie-in issues to War of the Realms are simply amazing. In, in this two-issue story, Doctor Strange and Carol swap bodies and have to try to master each other's powers. And it's some of the most fun I've had with either character in a long time. 
Several artists have worked on the book. Each has brought a fantastic visual style to the table. We're talking uh, Carmen Carnero, Lee Garbett, Corey Smith, uh, and several others who have served as sort of one or two issue fill-in artists. The book is always visually pleasing. So, you know, consider me a huge fan of the current Captain Marvel run. May it continue for a long time. It's well worth reading, well worth getting caught up to. Um, highly recommended stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm super interested in this. I've heard nothing but great things about this title. Uh, Kelly Thompson is someone that I've been kind of my peripheral vision has always been eyed on. I follow her on Twitter. Uh, I've always heard great things about her Kate Bishop work. Um, you know, in advance of the Hawkeye series, I plan to do a deep dive on on some Kate Bishop books. Um, you know, Carol has always been a fantastic character. I mean. You, I, I always kind of gravitate towards strong female characters, Storm, Kitty Pride, um, you, you know, and also also Carol has a deep history um, with the X Men even before you know Rogue's introduction back in back in the Claremont era. She was right there with them out in space and and in the Shi'ar uh, Empire and all that stuff. And uh, you know, you put Carmen Carnero's name down. I'm, I'm right there because she did some fantastic work on the miles book. Um, and, and I'm a huge, huge fan of, of her art. She's just gorgeous. So I, I am definitely looking forward to checking this one out, especially in a, you know, in, in, in advance of Captain Marvel too. And I'm going to freely admit as a DC guy, I have been increasing my Marvel intake just because there's been a lot that I've, you know, missed out on. And I have to say, uh, there are some really good books at Marvel uh, over the last few years. Uh, and I'm actually particularly looking forward to maybe getting into uh, Immortal Hulk next um, and getting caught up on that series. There, There's some really interesting takes on, on these characters happening right now that have completely flown under my radar, Chris. Yeah, and, and consider this like a two-for-one commendation. Um, if you are looking at, at doing a digital comics uh, subscription, um Comixology Unlimited has has some nice kind of intro. If you're looking to do like a deep dive, Comixology will whet your appetite until you have to pay for the more recent stuff. Like for example, I'm I'm reading an Invincible right now, and you can get like the first ten volumes. I I can't speak to the DC Universe or DC Universe Unlimited what they're turning that into, but Marvel Unlimited, um, I I really really enjoy, and they have since updated it uh, to like three months out. So you can stay pretty current, you know, with with Marvel Unlimited subscription, and and it's probably the best bang for your buck in in all of comic books. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing like a good comic book subscription service. I'm uh, eyeballing what what'll happen with you know DC Universe as it becomes DC Universe uh, Unlimited. I believe is what they're calling it. Now, Chris, you are returning back to the world of television, but still comic book adjacent. What do you have for us? So, I was inspired for this uh, nerd commendation with our conversation with with Ross that you all just listened to. Um, I watched Utopia on Amazon Prime Video um, very early in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. Um, and as we talked about in in our interview, uh, that's based on a 2013 UK series, the one that Ross referenced. Um, and that's that show is something I'm definitely going to check out. Um, hopefully, they'll get to tell the whole story. Now, the reason that I have been sitting on this nerd commendation since February 
um, was because it was canceled after one season. Um, it was very, very frustrating the way that the first season ended and ended on a cliffhanger. Um, but now doing some more research, it, it looks like it was just some poor timing in the release of this. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, a show covers a worldwide pandemic that is controlled by corporations. So it, it, it probably hit too close to home. Um, and a lot of media outlets were not comfortable, you know, putting like a big ringing endorsement on this show with everything that was going on in February of last year. Um, so here's the basic premise, a group of young adults, and I'm reading this from the IMDB page, a group of young adults who meet online, get a hold of a cult underground graphic novel, which not only pins them as a target of a shadowy deep state organization, but also burdens them with the dangerous task of saving the world. So this is like conspiracy theory, but like it actually means something because, you have one individual who knows what is happening behind the scenes and he's releasing clues in this comic book series. And so like you have this inner circle of hardcore rabid comic book fans that it, it's kind of like this play on how rabid comic book collectors can be in that entire community, which is kind of adjacent to comic book readers. The collector community is pretty intense. So it's a really interesting kind of satire on that, but they're also pursuing this because it's kind of parsing out Hansel and Gretel type breadcrumbs as to who are the real bad guys in the world today. Um, unfortunately was canceled after one season. So it does leave you on a cliffhanger, but I still think even after, you know, weighing that out on the scales of my emotions, I still think it's worth a watch. It's such a cool premise, conspiracy theories surrounding a prophetic comic book series. I mean, you know, we love comics, so why not a whole show about comics? Um, the cast is, is without a doubt the, the strongest selling point here. John Cusack uh, as like the main character is just top notch. I've never seen him act like this. You know, he's usually in, like the same kind of roles. But to see him in this show, it was really eye-opening. Rain Wilson, you know him as Dwight Schrute from The Office, but this, again, was another step outside that tight cast role. And it was really eye-opening and really appreciative, uh, kind of along the lines of how he was as um, uh, Mud in Star Trek Discovery. Really, really appreciate that performance. Um, a lot of minor uh, actors that you probably haven't heard of that are really, really great. Um, one, you know, little nugget for nerds. If you watched uh, Gotham, which I watched for a little bit, one of the bright spots of Gotham for me was Corey Michael Smith as Edward Nigma, the Riddler. He was just one of those, like, you could tell that there was something special about that actor um, as the Riddler. And and he, he shows up um, as the main character's son and, and really did not disappoint here. So this guy's Corey, Michael Smith has some serious acting chops. Um, every single episode of this show is ending on a spine tingling cliffhanger, including the finale. Now, again, it's canceled after one season, but it's still a great story nonetheless. Um, and it's one of those series that 
Um, I know we talked about the slow burn of one division. It's interesting how some series are like, I want to watch it slowly and watch it develop. And then some that you just want to watch it all at once and then just sit there and postulate on it and kind of have this withdrawal afterwards. This is one of those. You got to binge it. I finished all eight episodes in less than 24 hours. It's very smartly written. It felt very similar to something like V for Vendetta. If you enjoy that film and book. Um, it's not some cracked out conspiracy theory where, you know, tinfoil hats, although there is a particular character that I, I love in the show that is one of those types of guys, but it's still something that is a conspiracy theory that's viable. You could definitely see taking place and, and maybe it was a little bit too real. Um, the series was widely ignored by the media. Maybe that was the reason why which probably further supported the decision to cancel it. It has like a 51% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and I vehemently disagree with that rating. Um, And I think the more I look at Rotten Tomatoes, I think that that system is broken and uh, it is beyond repair. But Utopia on Prime Video, I highly recommend it. It is is an eight-episode fever dream that will definitely have you and the people that you are watching it with talking for, for a good amount of time. My wife and I were throwing stuff back and forth for days, just talking about this show. Yeah. I can see how this would be an interesting show. You know, first the idea of, you know, starting off with a comic book and then basically making a show about the comic book being true in some ways, an interesting jumping on point for a story to begin with. You know, I'm also fascinated that given the current political climate, uh, that somebody tried to make this show, you know, that cast conspiracy theorists as the good guys. That's certainly not the perception of uh, much of the public right now. So, yeah, this is, looks really interesting. I didn't know much about this show when I saw that you were planning on recommending it. I am disappointed to find out it's been canceled after only one season. I uh, have a problem somehow getting into stories knowing that there's never going to be a conclusive ending. Um I hate to see that, and I hate to try to get into a show only for it to leave the story unfinished. But, you know, given the the interesting nature of, of the premise and the fact that it's only eight episodes, I may give this a shot anyways. Yeah, and, and I, I read an article for Collider that, that further speculated that with Prime Video, they really put their... Um, advertising resources behind their their champion horses like Hunters, um, starring Al Pacino and um, The Boys, which was a smash hit for them. So they really put all of their eggs in those two baskets. And, you know, Utopia was kind of, uh, you know, fell by the wayside as a result. That's a crying shame. It really is. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for joining with us. Thanks again to Ross Ritchie for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to chat with us. Um, and as always, thank you for your support. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And if you like what you hear, why not go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and drop us a review. Uh, we are available wherever you can find podcasts, including, you know, the old standbys like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find us on YouTube and at our very own website, nerdbyword.com. Also, be sure to hang out with us every Saturday night at 10 p.m. for hashtag Drunk Pete on Twitter. Just find, search the hashtag hashtag drunk Pete, and we'll be able to fill you in there. Also be sure to check out our friend podcast X of words for very current, very viable 
X-Men content if you're uh, obsessed with the X-Books like I am. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.